Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Helen Kelly lived and died a fighter. The daughter of prominent unionist Pat Kelly and Vietnam activist Catherine Eichelbaum, Kelly was destined for a life of political engagement. She held senior positions in a labour movement that was dominated by men, including serving as the president of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions for many years. Diagnosed with lung cancer, she campaigned for both the right to use medicinal cannabis and the right to die with dignity before her untimely death at the age of 52. Award-winning journalist Rebecca McPhee, whose previous work includes Tragedy at Pike River Mine, How and Why 29 Men Died, now delivers Helen Kelly, Her Life, a biography of one of New Zealand's political legends whom she describes as a fireball of charm, grit, humour and piercing analysis. McPhee speaks with Toby Manhire. We hope you enjoy it. Today, Rebecca, is... is is the, also the launch day of this book, so it's a, it's, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty cool, cool day to be talking. On top of that, it's the 30th birthday of the Employment Contracts Act, which is extraordinary. I don't know. <laughs> um, thank you. The, I wanted to ask you right at the top, is that an accident or is that by design that, that it's launching today? It's... It's both. Yeah. Yeah. When I realised that this book was not going to take me a year to write, but it was going to take me many years, I thought, if I could just get it done in, 19, in, <laughs> in 2021, mm. that would have a nice kind of feeling about it, because that would be 30 years. And then it turned out that um, I was asked to speak at Auckland Writers' Festival, and then it turned out, which we said yes to, and then it turned out that the date was the 15th of May. So it's an absolutely nutty coincidence. The year is kind of by design, mm. but the day is just a complete fluky coincidence. I sort of, I want to talk more about the Employment Contract Act, but reading this book as I have been over the last few weeks, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think Helen Kelly was a religious person, but it feels like some god has been designing the news headlines and the perfect timing for the launch of your book, you know? We had the, the um, public sector pay freeze or not a freeze or w whatever it was, and we, we've had um, the, the nurses' union has announced a strike in the last few days. And um, perhaps most important of all, I think certainly most important of all, there was the announcement of plans for... Um, for for uh, what are the, what, 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 fair pay agreements? Fair pay agreements, and Helen Kelly called them industry standard agreements. Industry standard agreements. I mean, it feels like her influence is, is, has ripped right into into the last few days. Yeah, it it really has. Um, again, just a, a fluky thing, really. And I I knew that the decision about um, or the announcement about fair pay agreements was going to be some time around now. I didn't know it was going to be just within the last few days. And, you know, I've been kind of noticing the commentary about that policy um, 
I think Henry Cook, who's a great political reporter, mentioned that it, it's, you know, it's had got a long history, at least four years. And even though Henry's a really great reporter, he was wrong about that because it goes back to about really 2009 where Helen kind of fairly new in her role as head of the CTU decided that uh, no amount of organising was going to overcome the bias of the law against collective bargaining and collective representation of workers and that the law had to be changed. And so really, so she set about literally single-handedly reading every industrial relations regime, in the, certainly in the Western world, yeah. um, and, but also including South Africa, and learning about things that are weird things called extension bargaining regimes, which is sort of what their fair pay agreements are going to be. Very, very common in Europe. Um, and she developed this 200-page draft piece of legislation called Industry Standards Agreements and fought like crazy um, through her Labour Party connections, which were immense, yeah. to get it on the Labour Party manifesto in 2011. So it's a wee bit older than Henry's assessment, but it's got a new name. Um, and we had um, Jim Bolger is up the back, as, as we know, so, but he, there's, a, <laughs> there's a strange circularity there too, insofar as uh, Jim Bolger's Jim Bolger was the Prime Minister when the Employment Contracts Act came in, of course, but he was also headed a working group mm. that has led to the Fair Pay Agreement. That's right, right. yeah. Completely weird. Completely um, I mean, weird. Very deft politics on the part of the government, actually, at that point. But, mm. yeah, you know, Jim Bolger was the, um, the Prime Minister who won the 1990 election on the basis of the Decent Society. Um, and then within two months of that election, alongside and fundamentally part of the same package of policy, there was the Employment Contracts Bill tabled in Parliament just before Christmas 1990 in the same package as Ruth Richardson's benefit cuts. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a very integrated package. Um, and the bill became an act and came into force on the 15th of May 1991. And that was under Jim Bolger's watch, um, he'd, and he'd been a Minister of Labour, so he knew industrial relations inside out and thought the unions were out of control, basically, and thought strikes were out of control. Um, but he's famously um, concluded that the neoliberal experiment has been a failure mm. through that, that great interviewing with Guy Espiner. But he actually told me that he didn't resile at all from the Employment Contracts Act, which is really funny because he led the working group <laughs> that endorsed the idea of fair pay agreements. So I, I just I had to send me out to unpack the logic of that, I'm sorry. Mm. Mm. I mean, he's not one of the people that is um, always invoked when people, talk, I mean, people, when we think about that period, Roger, Digla, Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson are the kind of people that are thought of as the, as the, as the architects, mm. aren't they? Well, he was the enabler of it. He was the Prime Minister. He was the right. leader of Cabinet. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. that, that act, though, and all of the changes that took place around that time, including the mother of all budgets and, and so on, that really kind of laid out the landscape or kind of set the weather for the world that Helen Kelly was fighting in, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, she'd, she'd grown up in a, in a union household. Obviously, the world that... Um, that her father, Pat Kelly, had inhabited and, and 
it really became a prominent leader of and a, a firebrand within, mm. was smashed to the ground in 1991. And, you know, there may be people in the room, perhaps, who, who would say, yay, terrific, you know, because there'd been a, this period of time from sort of from the late 70s through to the mid-80s where the level of industrial action was really high, there were strikes all the time, huge... Uh, and it, this, that was in parallel with Britain, Australia, um, the United States as well, so it was a kind of a global thing. You've got this amazing stat in the book that I, that I, that I almost choked on my coffee on, of the, in 1979 there were 500 and something Yeah, I can't remember it? the figure actually, yeah, but yeah, it's in there. Yeah, or something like yeah, something yeah, amazing. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was a historical um, period of time. If you look, if you go back to, if you set aside 1951, the the graph line of strike action in New Zealand is incredibly flat. There are very, very few strikes for about 20 years, and then it lifts and lifts and lifts in that high inflation environment that's building. Uh, and unions still had power; they had compulsory membership. There was national awards, um, and then within that environment of, of market liberalisation and, and what I've called in the book, because it was contemporaneously what the term was, the new right agenda, mm. um, there was this incredibly powerful narrative that then built that, well, if it's good enough for you know, imports and exports and if it's good enough for the farmers, then it's good enough for the unions too. Mm. But mm. being good enough for the unions being, meant being good enough for workers. So 1991 is just this incredibly, it was an extremely radical piece of legislation. I don't think that that's ever been kind of deeply understood in mm. New Zealand, really. Um, you know, it's clearly its purpose was to smash unions as a collective force, and it, and it presupposed the idea that a worker who works in a supermarket stacking shelves at night has equivalent bargaining power with the owner of Countdown to set her wages and conditions. You know, that's the core logic of that law. You know, it's just preposterous. You know, it's plainly preposterous. But that was the belief system that sat behind it. And it had incredible power at that time. And, and it was a product of brilliant political organising by particularly the Business Roundtable. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You quote, you quote um, Roger Kerr sort of almost um, admiringly <laughs> in many ways in terms oh, of yeah. his ability to, to You have to admire him. He, he was a brilliant law. operator. Yeah, yeah he, um, he was smart, charming, and brilliant. The other thing that you um, say of him, I, and I don't know if this is um, new material that you uncovered when you are in the Turnbull or not, but he says that the way that the Labour movement responded was uh, like, quote, a stunned mullet. Mm, mm. And he was right, actually. Which is... They did, the union movement did respond like stunned mullets because it was what actually was unveiled in that package at the end of 1990 as part of the package of benefit cuts mm. was a lot more radical than what the union movement had been expecting. And I was, you know, I was a reporter on labour issues at the time and I was shocked. Mm. It went beyond... The, the National Party was always going to deregulate the labour market and there was always going to be fairly far-reaching reform, but there was an extent to it that I had not been prepared for. And I remember when, I, when, I, when it came out, you know, December 19th, 1990, being, wow, this is 
this is bigger. And, you know, one of the sort of symbols of that radicalism was the fact that the word union didn't appear in the entire bill. So it, it kind of disestablished the idea of unions as the legitimate uh, voice and representative of people who work for a living. And it was a, you know, phenomenally successful idea. You mentioned Pat and Kath, Helen's parents, and uh, they were the parents, obviously, of, of Helen and her brother Max, but it seems like when you describe some of the scenes in Shannon Street in Mount Victoria, it was almost like they were the godparents of a much bigger group of people, or even of a kind of way of thinking. And, and, and I mean, Shannon Street, which figures in a couple of houses, figure in this story, and maybe you can talk about that a little bit. It's almost like a character in, in, in the story in its own yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, kind of. And I, I found it, you know, as a writer, you kind of, you look for, I don't know, almost sort of pieces of structure, mm. you know, um, motif that helps you build the, the skeleton of the, of the narrative and helps you keep coming back to points of reference in the story. And so this house, you know, and I spend a lot of time in the house because Helen's, Helen's husband, Steve, still lives there. Um, so th because Helen's mother, Kath, bought the house in, as, a, as a young woman in 1954, and that was the house that she and Pat lived in after they got married in 1960, Helen and Max grow up there, they live their entire lives there. It's this kind of beacon for left-wing activists and unionists, and it's the place where Pat organises strikes over the phone, the phone's always ringing. Mm. Um, and so these two children are just soaking in this action, you know, and it's Vietnam activists that are through the door, it's, and it's, it's exiled South African trade unionists who are uh, visiting New Zealand and talking to workers about why they should be fighting against apartheid. And um, it's, it's the anti-nuclear movement. So all of these incredible progressive forces that are very tightly aligned with the union movement through those years, as well as the industrial work of union organising, of going, you know, Pat was organising cleaners. Mm. He, first of all, he was organising drivers and then he was organising cleaners. So, you know, he's, he's out in the middle of the night up high-rise buildings in Wellington, organising women who scrub toilets and helping them get better wages, and he was good at it. He won them, you know, huge improvements in their living conditions as a result of that work. And so all of this is happening in this, the household, this, this Shannon Street, which is a street, not a house, but I was able to kind of shorthand it, I suppose. So it, it kind of gives you this visual, physical, point of reference, um, a set of values belongs there, a, a style of activism, um, a kind of brand of resistance lives there in that house, mm. and it stays there, the and the house is still there. Could call the movie Shannon Street. Perhaps. Yeah, that would be good. P Peter Jackson might direct it. <laughs> He'd be up for that, I reckon. He's available. He'd love that. <laughs> you, yeah. you start the book with a, with a, with a sort of flash forward in movie terms, to a movie thing about that big hobbit fight um, over the Warner Brothers and Peter Jackson and uh, the Australian uh, union that's representing them and all of that maelstrom, really. Um, 
part of what it did was thrust Helen into the public eye for, for, for the first time. Mm. It must have been a massively formative experience for her. Yeah, it was. I think, I mean, I chose it as the, it, to me it was even right from the very first days really of working on the book, I mm. kind of knew that I was going to open the book on mm. that scene because, you know, it's a great story. And it was, Helen was still not a public figure by that point. This is 2010, October 2010 was when it reaches its kind of ugly high point. Um, and I think the fact that Helen wasn't known is itself a reflection of what had happened to the idea of unions for the previous 20 years at that point, now 30 years. Mm. Um, you know, in my generation, whoever was the head of the CTU, whoever, or the FOL as it was then, whoever was the leader of the union movement was a public figure. You know, you knew who they were, you kind of, and as a reporter, you rang them up, you interviewed them, you asked them what they thought about stuff. You know, and one of the things that the Employment Contracts Act did, which is that, you know, it just devastated union membership, it, it absolutely decimated collective bargaining. But it also took the idea of collective labour out of the kind of, the, the conversation, the idea of, of civil society. Mm. So gradually they just, you just hear less and less and less of union voices, of the voices of those who represent workers through those 20 years. And so it was kind of, I think it represented something else for me, the fact that it took this gigantic bust up over this movie, this fantasy movie, for the leader of the workers' movement to become known, mm. and, and that the, the, the mode by which she becomes known is by being abused by other workers on the main street of Wellington, and Willow Street, Wellington. So there's a kind of, all of this kind of history sort of funnels through that moment in a way. Um, so that's, there's a, she becomes a public figure, it's such a crazy story, um, it represents this moment in time that tells us something about how come nobody knew who she was before. She, rep you know, she represents the largest democratic organisation in the country, but we don't know why isn't she on the news all the time? Why isn't she in every, you know, twelve o'clock bulletin on the radio? Because of this history, yeah. It got quite, it got quite vicious, didn't it? Hell at, yeah! At, mm. at, at times, I mean, mm. some of the stuff. There's that. There's the the Paul Holmes interview as mm. one. There was the Hosking interview as well. Mm. The Paul, Paul Holmes, where he said she was well out of your depth mm. in attacking. It was kind of that you're attacking this incredible genius that we could lose. And I don't know. It's almost as though she became the lightning rod for better and worse for all of those sentiments. Mm. Mm. And then, and the other part of it, which I think is probably still not super well known or as well known as it might be, was that that crucial two or three days where the deal had been done, but they had perhaps mistakenly, mm. I don't know, you tell me, agreed to stay shtom on it yeah. until, until yeah. such time. Can you yeah, talk yeah. about that a little, a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there was a, I mean, I, you know, I've never been at a, I've never been a bargainer, I'm not a negotiator, so I don't really know, but I, from talking to people, what I, what I have come to understand is that when you're, when you're doing a complex deal around a table which has got multiple threads to it, you have to operate on trust. 
And so that's what Helen was doing, that's what she assumed they were doing. And there was this understanding that Warners wanted to control the timing of this release of the statement saying the actors, the international actors boycott has been called off um, this a path forward. And it didn't come and it didn't come and it didn't come. And in the meantime, there's this 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 march, this it wasn't a riot, but it was this angry march of film workers who were not actors, so they were tech workers, they were the, the carpenters who built sets, they're the um, you know, the graphic people, a whole bunch of these other people who were not actors. And some of them were actors because the actors were not united, who uh, riled up in this meeting out at Miramar at the Weta Studios um, and stormed to town, mm. jump in their cars and drive to town with angry placards. And it's like, not pitchforks, but might as well have been. And they are heading to this meeting where the actors are going to be meeting that night to talk about the deal, the settlement that's been done. They have to call off the meeting because there's this angry crowd coming their way. And, you know, it's, it's, when I was working on that part of the story, I just had to keep on going over and over this material again. I developed this incredibly detailed timeline that mm. it was getting to the point where I was like by the hour and then by the half hour mm. to figure out, have I got this right, you know? Really? And, and it, it was, it was just bizarre time, this eruption of, it was all kind of national pride and this dreadful woman and these actors that are just so selfish and they're narcissistic and they get this incredible abuse, terrible abuse that's directed at um, Jennifer Ward Leyland and Robin Malcolm and also at Helen. Vile, vile, ugly, poisonous abuse for wanting the most simple thing, which is the right to have some say in how they're compensated. That was their sin. And that law, that the Hobbit law, that kind of came out of all that sort of stuff, that's been undone to some degree some in degree, recent yeah. times too, hasn't it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's sort of arguments about whether it's gone far enough and, yeah. and so on. But yeah, it has been. It was a, again, that was a Labour promise to undo it. So how did, I mean, how did Helen come back from that after? I mean, that must have been, been an incredibly bruising, or for, mm. for, a, for a mortal, it would be an incredibly bruising mm. experience. I do think she was really shocked um, and and deeply offended, like she, <laughs> Jerry Brownlee called her a liar once on TV in one of these exchanges, and she never forgave him for that, mm. you know, and, and she, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a kind of a humiliation for the union movement, this already depleted, but trying to find a path to rebuilding union movement, and then there's this kind of mass humiliation, really, um, and she was angry. And so, you know, she kind of felt like she had to tell the real story and find out the real story of everything that had gone on in the background. So, so that led to, by about six, eight months later, she wrote this enormous essay, which was published on Scoop, um, with, you know, I don't know, a few thousand footnotes, I think. Mm. <laughs> so you could see the, the trajectory of the story. And I mean, I, I kind of, I had to kind of, 
do my own work on that story, find my own kind of path through that story. I couldn't, I couldn't take her word for it. You know, I, I kind of never took her word for it in, in any of the research because I had to know in that story, as in the many other scrapes that she got involved with, I had to kind of pull all the material together myself to figure out what had happened and then what did I think about what her role in the union role had been. But, you know, in terms of her response to that, I, I think it was, it was, yes, I think primarily I would say she was angry. And, and then there's this kind of thing that happens, again, it's like an accident of, of chronology, really, which is that, that that Hobbit bill goes through Parliament under urgency on the 20, sort of overnight on the 29th of October 2010. Mm. And there's, you know, this sort of washout happens afterwards in the days afterwards. And then on the 19th of November, Pike River blows up. So there's sort of no time to think. There's just this, these two, this, this, this public humiliation of the union movement and then this calamity mm. which you know, is incomprehensible, but is also part of this long story of disabling of collective workers' voice. So the two, that's why I sort of married the two stories at the end of, the, of that prologue, because it's the combination of them, I think. Uh, she's a brave person, Helen, you know, she's always been kind of, she's outgoing, she's quite, she's gregarious, but I think it, I guess my feeling was that it kind of re-anchored her in, 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 Shannon, in the roots of Shannon Street. I think it mm. took away some of her reserve and sort of caution. I think she had quite a lot of political caution in the first couple of years in, in her role. And I think she just, she, I think she just ran on raw sense of injustice and allowed herself to be guided by that fully in those years after. And Pike River, is a story that you know uh, better than anybody, really. You wrote an incredible book about the disaster and the aftermath. What is, what is, what is, what is Helen's role in the story of Pike River? Well, it's really a post-disaster role. Mm. Um, you know, because in one of the... I didn't... Uh, this, that's actually how I met Helen. Mm. Like, I didn't know her until we were launching the Pike River book at Unity Books. <laughs> um, it wasn't until you'd finished the book, I'd not even in the, the book. course of... So that was the end of 2013, so... And I hadn't interviewed her for the book, because uh, I knew there was no need to. I, I mean, I'd, I'd done some interviewing with the Engineers Union, um, but one of the points of the Pike story is that the union movement was disabled. So the Engineers Union was trying to recruit in there that taken, that had, had, there'd been one walkout over health and safety. Mm. Um, they had tried to push against a bonus scheme that really is strongly implicated in the way the work was occurring in this, that last sort of sprint towards the disaster. But really they had, you know, it was, a, it was an openly, vigorously anti-union site. You know, Whittle, Peter Whittle didn't, didn't want the union on the site, didn't want a unionised site. They, they see the union, any notion of unionism as retrograde and getting in the way. So, you know, the union, the movement was disabled as a, as a, as a possible participant in that story 
and as a possible guard against the calamity that was to come. Mm. You know, if you'd had a if you'd had a vigorous union that was really alert on health and safety staff, had a voice, it had to be listened to because it had strength, I think the story could have been different. But it wasn't. So I didn't, you know, this is all by way of saying, I didn't need to interview the head of the CTU about, you know, what were you doing about Pike River, because I knew. She didn't even know what Pike River was, really. She'd met Whittle once in a fancy health and safety forum, which was achieving nothing, where he came in and lectured this health and safety council about, you know, the brilliant things that um, business leaders were doing about health and safety these days. And that was it, you know, about five months later it blew up. <laughs> but it was after the explosion, and even in the immediate two years really after the explosion, two to three years, there wasn't really much that she could do. It was really the, um, the decision to drop the charges against Peter Whittle. So that's the end of 2013, and he was going to be facing 12 health and safety charges, and it was supposed to go to court the next year. He had pleaded not guilty, and then in this mind-bending decision in early December 2013, um, WorkSafe drops the charges against him in this arrangement which involves the payment of $3.4 million to the families. And she's, as I was, <laughs> outraged. And she, so that's really a big moment of her really, really strong involvement in the Pike story. So she is the backbone of the judicial review proceedings in the, that are taken in the name of Sonia Rockhouse and Anna Osborne, which mm. in her lifetime was unsuccessful. It had gone all the way to the, it had been heard in the Court of Appeal before Helen died, and the Court of Appeal found against the judicial review. And then it was, from memory, actually, I think about a year after she died that the Supreme Court ruled that it was an unlawful decision to, to stifle a prosecution. So she was right. She was right in the end. Mm. And in that course of that work, she developed some pretty tight relationships with those two women, particularly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a thing that I think is true. I mean, it's true in when you watch the Tony Storius film, mm. which, which, which you looked at, including bits that didn't make the final cut, mm. I think. And in relationships with the people who have lost family in forestry and the family, even her family who are in India away mm. with the young security guard who was killed. She seems to, it's, it's, it, it seems, reading your telling of it, that it's never a administrative relationship. Not really, no, no. She, yeah, she, she, she does become personally invested in these relationships. And um, this is a slightly aside, I was thinking about this morning, mm. that something that occurred to me about what we might end up talking about. I've used the word productivity with Helen quite a lot. And I've sort of used that word kind of deliberately, bit of a bit of a subliminal dig, you know. Um, I think I think the idea of productivity, that word has been kind of monopolized by by the market. And and I think I look at what I've come to understand about the, the work of really committed unionists. This is incredibly hard work. You know, and Helen was a sort of an exemplar of 
how difficult that work is and what it takes emotionally and what it takes in terms of time, you know, time and effort, strategy and patience. And so, you know, she had this phenomenal productivity. And by that I mean both sheer hard work, you know, she'd be answering emails from workers who were writing to her because they'd been sacked from their share milking position or this kind of thing. The random people that she'd never met who wrote asking, is there somebody who can help me? And she would help them. You know, she'd, she'd tell somebody else in the movement to look after this person and sort it out, will you? Or she'd do it herself or she'd put them in touch with somebody. She never left virtually. And I saw the emails. I, you know, mm. I'm not, this is not received wisdom. I saw the evidence of it in black and white. Um, so nobody was let through the net in a way. So it was just this incredible sort of energy and hard work, but also productivity in the sense of targeted effort. But this is incredibly hard work. And, you know, it's not like as a result of that she achieved in rescue in the union movement. That didn't happen. But... I think about that in terms of, say, the work of other people who work in, I don't know, the volunteer sector or other people who work in the union movement or people who work in the care profession who go around and, you know, shower people like, like my late mother who had Alzheimer's disease and look after her. And I think when I say, I think that word productivity has been monopolised by the market. It's been claimed for business as if it's something that they ought to have and they need these kind of rules or non-rules or non-regulations in order to have more of it. But actually it's something that is, it, it, it's across the board, it's everybody brings their best effort to things. And, and Helen deserves that word, you know. These people who, you know, go and shower my mother deserve that word too. And they deserve all of the kind of respect and um, proper kind of capacity to speak about their lives and gain proper compensation for it that, that everybody else deserves from it. <laughs> <laughs> She's a pretty hopeless advertisement for a work-life balance, though. That yes, she was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I said, I think there was no, there was no distinction. No. Work was life, yeah. and life was just this crazy, non-stop thing. I mean, she was a gregarious person. Mm. She, had a, um, she really did have a gift for friendship. She had a very um, low barrier to friendship, and which I learned myself because she invited me to her wedding. And, and <laughs> An in intimate wedding with 450 other people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, um, it was something that was incredibly intriguing about her, you know, as, as a sort of a kind of half-time half introvert, you know, to see somebody who just makes friends and yeah. keeps them for life, you know, kind of, she never let anybody go, really. And the yeah. sense of humour was part of that, yeah. right? Like yeah, yeah. Like a real, mm. seemed, I mean, I don't, as far as I can tell, not deployed in a strategic way, more just a sort of instinctive way, but maybe maybe both? Maybe well, both? I, I mean, I was never in a negotiating room with her, but yeah. I suspect it, you know, it got unloosed there, like unleashed there. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the impacts of the Employment Contract Act, of course, was just a sort of 
plummeting of membership and that created tensions itself within the union movements in terms of who does a union represent at times? Do you, uh, uh, what's sometimes called the freeloader question, mm. <clears throat> do you represent only the people who are signed up un mm. members of the union or are you representing everyone across an industry and so on? That's mm. a very crude and simplistic way of putting it. Mm. But that was, as far as Helen was concerned, she didn't, wasn't, she wasn't checking union cards at the door in her work, was she? No, no, the opposite. And that, you know, that got her in some strife, of course. So, mm. you know, if you take, for instance, the story of the, the young security guard who was murdered at work, Charampreet Daliwal, whose case she took up, which is 2011. And, you know, she was furious. She wanted to, she was going, she was looking for every angle she could find. She wanted to sue Fulton Hogan, who was the... The, the, gen, the, the actual principal in that contract. He was a you know, nominal dependent contractor, mm. which is you know, widespread across the economy. A little tin-ass company that employs three people contracted to a big outfit. You know, there's, nothing, there's nothing independent about that. Anyway, this boy had been employed at 10 o'clock at night, sent to work at 10.30 on his own with his torch and murdered at one in the morning. Um, and she took up his case, including this, you know, really going after Fulton Hogan, who was, it was their site that was being guarded. Um, and there was a union um, that represented many of the workers who worked for Fulton Hogan called the um, Amalgamated Workers Union. And they didn't like that. <laughs> they didn't like that the head of the CTU was going after their employer and it was a, you know, it was a split. They left the union. They left the CTU. Um, there was some rows between Helen and Ray Bianchi, who was the head of um, A1s, um, and you know, quite, quite, uh, probably. I, I, I don't know exactly what was said, but it would have been firm. Yeah, yeah. Um, she didn't care. I mean, I think fundamentally, she knew that if the union movement couldn't be the voice for all workers, whether they were a member or not, in this, in this period of sort of this long period of, you know, wages hadn't kept up, the workers' share of the economy as a, you know, as an economic measure mm. had just been falling. Um, there wasn't really any, there was no points of breakthrough, really. Um, so she didn't care. She, I think she, in her toes, knew that for the union movement to be worth anything, it had to speak for that boy. It had to speak for the forestry workers who were also not union members, who were being killed in, in double-digit numbers, whose cause she took up. And, and she had this um, phrase that, a bit like a shorthand that she used to kind of represent this idea, which was, that the union movement had to find some way of being there for the four-square worker from Kaitaia. And so this, this nominal person who I think did exist, and in fact, apparently, she later on joined the union. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, so, but it was this idea that across the workforce, you know, we got, we've got 90% of the private sector workforce doesn't belong to any union. We've got incredibly low levels of collective um, bargaining, collective employment contract, employment agreements. And so all, because of the sort of structure of industrial relations and the workforce, 
90% of the private sector workforce is literally beyond the reach of any organising, and, and particularly so if you are a four-square worker in Kaitaia, where if you want to organise, you've got to kind of be prepared to stand up against your boss, you've got to talk to other people who work for the four-square when you're not at work, you know, maybe they work the afternoon shift and you work the morning shift, you've got to organise some meetings, you've got to get the unions, the unions um, organiser involved, you've got to be prepared to um, accept the kind of discontent of the employer about the fact that you're getting the union involved. That's before you've achieved a single thing. You haven't, you haven't gained another cent in your wage at this point. So the risks are enormous, and she was describing this phenomenon of powerlessness, and that's represented by this idea of the four-square worker in Kaitaia. Yeah. Which she's very good at, right? Like other yeah. people will have that argument about the political economies and all that, you know, talk yeah. about all sorts of things that might make us slightly mm. fade away or fall asleep. But mm. she was very good at that. I mean, you talk about her reframing the story of work and you talk about narratives, which sometimes uh, those words are meaningless, but she was conscious of what she was doing in terms of telling the story. Yep. It was a bit of, God forbid, branding Hell involved. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is another funny thing about, you know, a little bit like my comment before about productivity. I have never met so many amazing, intelligent, strategic people as I have in the union movement in the last three years. And, you know, if she, Helen could have gone into business and become a zillionaire, probably. She could mm. have certainly set up a brilliant PR company because mm. she was an incredible communicator. But she didn't. She chose to, she was, she chose to turn, to keep her skills in the fight that, her, that Shannon Street had fought. Um, but she was acutely conscious of language. And she worked at it. You know, she went to Ian Fraser at one point and got some coaching. She mm. wanted to kind of, how can I cut through? How can I, mm. how can I get these ideas out? You know, and, and she, she talked about the dominant narrative, which was really the 30-year narrative of the market is always going to be better, the private sector is always going to be better, you know, free bargaining was always going to be better than collective bargaining. So all of these kind of heavy weights of, um, of sort of inertia, the inertia of the last 30 years were leaning against her being understood in what she was trying to say. So she kind of found, got just better and better, really, at these shorthands. Because, you know, if you're in the media all the time, and you, you start to, you, you notice it when you listen hard to other people who are very good at this, that there's always shorthand that you have to turn complex ideas into. And she, she, was, she was really good at it, and she was getting better and better at it. You mentioned Ian Fraser, and one of the things I think that you mentioned in passing is that she had raised with him the idea of talking about drug law reform, yeah. and he'd said, don't, you do, don't stay well away yeah. from that, and yeah. she took that advice. And then, of course, the, 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 the very last part of her life, she became known in a sort of different way and um, uh, was in cameras for a different reason. That was around medical marijuana, which was a kind of fascinating new cause that she mm. kind of had, and it's been described in some ways as a second act. Is that, mm. is that how you see it? Yeah, no, I don't, I think it was, I think what she, she didn't really know anything about the kind of the, the, the case for drug reform much, she had, like she, she hadn't had time to think about it, she mm. was on the edge, you know, she was focused on labour issues obviously, 
And then when she discovered that actually this stuff was going to help her a lot to live as well as she could, mm. um, and, be- and immediately became public about using it. Um, and so a-, a lot of the sort of cannabis reform activist community started coming to her. You know, this was, well, you know, because by then she was a fairly well-known public figure, public figure taking dope for cancer pain. And I think she felt, I think she talks about how she couldn't not speak up about it because as soon as she spoke up and said that she was using it, her inbox, and I saw these emails, Mm. was full of messages from people who were in pain, they were struggling with arthritis or with cancer or with multiple sclerosis or... um, and, And these people were finding her and saying this is my problem, what can I do? Um, this is what I've found, try this. People were sending her supplies, and more than she could use, so she used to package them up and send them to people who'd written to her. So there was such a kind of wave of need that became evident to her that she couldn't not. And she said to John Campbell, actually, I think towards the end, you know, that she, just, she expressed it this way. She said, how can, I be, how can I be somebody who's getting the benefit of this stuff? You know, from people who are putting themselves at risk by, by you know, um, providing it to her, how can I take that and not, you know, use my voice to try and do what I can to help make it easier for other people? It was simply not possible for her to not see the social justice problem and throw herself at that as well. So second act, third, fourth, fifth, I don't know. She had lots of acts going on, and right until the end as well. She was still fighting for the meat workers right at the end as well. So, you know, none of that stuff ever stopped. Um, she was still, you know, she was in the appeal court with the forestry, with the pike story a month before she died, mm. you know, six weeks before she died. Yeah. One of the, I'm going to come to questions quite soon, but I, I mean, I need to ask you about <coughs> the, the act of her life that didn't play out, that was always expected by everyone, including her, from a relatively young age, which was the political part, you know, mm. she would, she would, I, I mean, she would be in cabinet today, it's yeah. pretty safe to say, if, yeah. if I think maybe even Jacinda Ardern mm. told you that as much? Yeah, she said to me uh, um, that she would have gone straight into cabinet, which is, you know, not unheard of, and it has, I'm kind of think of who it is, but Aisha somebody's, Burrell, yeah, 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 so I, I guess it would have been a similar kind of situation, I mean, Helen was well connected in the Labour Party, you know, she'd been a Labour Party member for a long time. No, if they all knew who she was. Yeah, she spent a good bit of time in the Beehive. As yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So yeah, she would have been in there. I mean, she wouldn't have been the Prime Minister because just Jacinda Ardern would have been. Well, she uh, might have been if things had done ta- happened differently. In, yeah, by the time if you if you take the elections, yeah. you know, she wasn't ne- she was never going to go into Parliament until 2017 because she decided against it in 2014. But if she had decided in 2014, if she, she could had have been de- Prime Minister. It could have been. You know? It could have been. But she didn't go in for 2014 <laughs> because she didn't. She there was too much going on in this work. There, were too, there was too much unfinished business in the union movement. She didn't want to leave it. Um, so she, was, she stayed really to, to, to fight these workers' battles from the position that she had in 2014, not knowing, of course, what was to come. Mm. She could have been a professional actor if she got into that drama school. She, she could have been a professional actor, yeah. <laughs> she loved drama, yeah. <laughs> lots of things, lots of roads not travelled, eh? Um, I've, I haven't got any more questions about what, what she could have been. <laughs> but um, I want to ask you, 
to tell me how many people did you interview in, in, in writing this book? Um, I think the I think the count I did was about 200, but there were like about 400 interviews because some people I just just kept on pestering. And, and that's just amazing to yeah. that. And all of the reading and all the, how did you do it? Oh, I probably just about died. <laughs> uh, didn't do anything else. Mm. <laughs> Ask my family. <laughs> Ask my family. <laughs> I mean, Not very well at times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, there's so much depth in it, and, and almost each chapter you feel as though could be a book in almost yeah. its own Yeah, and life. it was right, you know, that was what, you know, that was one of the things that was incredibly hard in writing it, in that the minute you decide that you need to wrap this context around the story, there's, there's another whole story there that you've got to research, and then how far do you go with that? How much is too much? And so every day were lots of difficult research and writing decisions about how, you know, what, what needed to be in. Because I don't want to, you know, I didn't want to write a 2,000-page book because I never read a book that long. You know, I wanted to read a book that I might read. <laughs> did you feel any kind of extra pressure or burden or, or, or I don't know what, because, because she died too young? There are a lot of people, including I'm sure some in this room, who have very, very vivid and fresh mm. memories of her. You know, it's not like talking, writing about somebody from the past, really. Yeah. I mean, because I've never written another, any other biography, I, I can't really <laughs> yeah. compare it. Um, but I imagine the experience of writing about somebody from 50 years ago would be very different. I mean, for a start, you're not likely to find interviewees who knew the person, whereas, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. I mean, I remember one person saying to me early on, you know, don't you think it's too soon? Mm. And I kind of, oh, maybe it is. Um, but I mean, the great advantage was that, you know, I mean, I could have interviewed a thousand people easily. Um, but there were a lot of people with, who had direct experience of being in the same battle with her or just knowing her or being a friend for life or being on, on the other side. So you got, you know, as a, it, it, it meant I could be a reporter with the material, mm. not, a, not an historian. Um, and and use the interviewing material to kind of put, um, I think hopefully put more, you know, the documents in the interviewing go side by side. It's not one or the other, but it, it just gave me that whole body of personal experience and reflection that I could draw on that if you were writing about somebody from long ago, wouldn't be possible. You'd have to find that equivalent and you, you, might, you would find it in letters and in archives like that, but... Um, so yeah, it's hard to hard to make that comparison, really. Yeah. Um, I'd love to have hear questions from uh, the audience. If you have a question, spring to your feet and come into the aisle. And there are microphones here and here, and I think here and here. Who's going to stand up and throw something at us? Um, while someone comes forward, Rebecca, tell us what the this is one of the discoveries of the book for me. The television program that Helen Kelly loved, that she binge-watched, I would assume it was something like The Wire or something kind of quite grunting like that, and it was... Sex in the City. Sex in the City. <laughs> she was mad on it. 
One of, one of many revelations <laughs> in Rebecca McPhee's book. I think, do we have a question here? Yeah. Um, Pike River and Helen Kelly, I'm just wondering what's going to come next. Sorry, where am I looking? Oh, okay. Oh, well. <laughs> you asking about the mine re-entry? No, no, and what's going to come next? Next project. <laughs> oh, project. Um, recovery for me. Yeah, yeah. But um, on the story, you know, there's a major police inquiry ongoing. So there's a lot more to happen yet. Thank you. One of the stories I feel like could... Of the stories in here in the book that could expand more is the story of the Trade Union Hall bombing which feels like it needs to be told mm. in more length. Do you fancy doing that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I was really surprised at how that story has almost leaked out of history, really. You know, there was an act of terrorism in Vivian Street in Wellington on March the 23rd, 1984, and it's like, it's not, it's not embedded in kind of general consciousness. Mm. Um, I think the Rainbow Warrior, which was only the following year, people have a broad knowledge that that was a thing that happened and it was terrorism and a person died and there was some, some kind of insufficient aftermath to it. But it's like, you know, somebody left a bomb in the corridor of Trades Hall where it sat all day until Ernie Abbott lifted it and it, and it blew into pieces and it could have killed any number of other people as well. Helen Kelly's including, was including there, Pat Kelly, who a lot of people thought it was possibly targeted at, and yet, and it's not for lack of the police investigation. I don't really think that's the reason why it's kind of fallen out of public consciousness. I think, you know, there is my impression from talking to people was that you know there was a pretty solid police investigation. I saw the exhibit room. I was, you know, I, it, there was a, a, a new attempt. There's been a new attempt to you know, reopen the file and get some resolution. And yet it's not something that people commonly know about. Um, so yeah, maybe there's a book for somebody, not me at the moment. Yeah. Is there anybody else with a question? No, I've, oh, yes. Can I ask a question? Yes, please do. Th thanks so much for your talk, Becky. Um, I uh, was born in 1991, so I grew up when uh, they didn't really have unions as much. Um, and so I haven't... Uh, growing up um, knowing much about them per se, so I'm really looking forward to the book to inform myself. I had one question, one comment. Just a comment, um, I don't actually think there is a four square in Kaitai. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the question is, um, in society, obviously uh, inequities are a major, major issue at the moment. I'm just curious what you think the role of unions are in sort of helping to reduce those, and if there is a role for them in that. Yeah, very much. And in fact, it, you know, one of the weird things that's happened in kind of mainstream economic thinking in the last sort of five to eight years is that even groups like the OECD and the IMF um, are now writing about collective labour and collective bargaining and unions as a countervailing force against inequality. You know, these are the same organisations that championed the you know, the market model for the previous 40 years. But it's now acknowledged that the collapse of, um, collapse of collective bargaining, not just in New Zealand, but more broadly as well, has, 
worsened inequality and that collective bargaining can help to reduce it. And of, and of course, how, I mean, how can how can it not be a force for greater equity when, if you consider that two point, I think the, I think the figure is two point two million New Zealanders work for wages and salaries, so they don't own a business, they're not they're not high managers. Um, you know, they work for a wage, they work for an employer. So, who's 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 the voice for those people? if you don't have a strong union movement that's well organised, that's got, you know, well anchored in strong values of equity and fairness, who's gonna, who's gonna represent the interests of all those people if you don't have unions? Thanks. It'll be really interesting to see where it goes over my lifetime. So thank yeah, you. it will be, Nick. Yeah. I think that's a perfect, perfect note to, to, to cap it on um, and the ongoing role of the movement. Um, Rebecca, it's an incredible book. It's, uh, I mean, you, I, I know you've poured many years of your life into it, and I think we are all the better for it because it stands as a, a, a really important New Zealand book. Um, and thank you for that. And thank you for sharing this hour with us. Go and buy it outside, get it signed. <laughs> Rebecca McPhee. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.